I'm Jason Klom, and this is Comedy on Vinyl. Yes, the artist, also various, my guest this week, Duncan Miller of Vulcan Records. Thank you so much for doing the show. And that's the introduction, is it? That is the introduction, quick and to the point. Ah, very good. Yes, uh, I thought I would. Um, I thought just in order to get my own back at this end, I don't know if you'll get it get get it loud enough from the where the microphone's positioned. But I thought I'd let I, I thought I'd let uh, Will Evans do an introduction for you as well um, from a cylinder. All right. goes on after that but <laughs> standing in front of the recording hall and having to try and get a, a, a an unseen and uh, a, an unseen audience to respond to him but uh, eccentric comedian will evans you know uh you've picked that's funny now that you say that you've picked the only other time maybe in history uh, other than now uh, uh where comedians have really been forced and stuck to perform for zero audience and hope to god they're listening and give a crap because you know people are doing zoom comedy shows now all the time and i'm just like and i do one and not a stand-up show but a, a performance show we don't get the laughs but we have to yeah. sort of assume they're out there um so why don't you, before we get into the specifics of the stuff that you picked, which is all fascinating, um, what Vulcan Records is, and uh, we'll go from there. Oh, well, I was, I was just going to meander into the fact that, that we're now experiencing something from a performance point of view, that um, people coming to the recording studio, and even in, well, especially in the early days, were also experiencing. And uh, the great Dan Lino, who you may or may not have heard of, who was top of the top of the bill comedian in the in the late 1890s early 1900s okay uh, particularly disliked going into the recording studio because he said remembering that we're using a recording horn which is roughly conical his his rather nicely alliterative phrase was how can you be funny into a funnel <laughs> um and the problem with the, the likes of dan lino um because he was very skilled at, at working an audience and it was said that he could basically he'd turn up on stage he'd come to the front of the stage and he wouldn't say anything he'd just look at members of the audience in a particular way for about a minute and a half <laughs> until the whole house fell apart you know oh. and so the fact that he had to go in somewhere and there's this piece of apparatus in front of him uh, which wasn't going to respond which is which is why i sort of opened up with uh, with uh, will evans having a laugh and talking to an unseen audience and a few other and he does that quite often and he's doing that you know in the first few years of commercial recording he's um he does he does talk to people who are listening to the phonograph and they also he also asked why they wanted to put this record on and things like that <laughs> and i find it very interesting to see how people engaged with that whole process uh, later on once people are into the whole thing um people like Clapham and Dwyer, the wireless nuisances, um, get to the end of a side and said, please turn over one new needle. <laughs> My God. And so they, 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 they know their audience, they, they, they acknowledge that they're, they're on a record and that now you've got to get up, turn the record over, wind the machine up and play the other side. I love that you've picked the oldest comedy we've ever spoken about on this show. 
um, and it, that they were getting that meta early on. It's not stuff that I have I have a ton of experience with, so you're going to be probably blowing my mind this entire time. <laughs> I I think the f the oldest we've gone, and I could be wrong, I'll be corrected if I am, is either some old-time radio stuff, which is mostly American old-time radio, or George Formby. That might be the oldest we've gone, which is not that far ago, far ago compared to what you picked. Well... You also, you see, the thing is, you talk about George Formby, I presume you're talking about George Formby Jr. You're fair, yes. LA. Ah, well, his father, George Formby Sr., mm -hmm. was, was, is on, he did a lot of acoustic recording. In fact, he only did acoustic recording because he died in 1921. Mm -hmm. And indeed, in the early years of, 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 of George Formby Jr.'s act, all of his materials learnt off the records that his father had made. That's fantastic. And his father was his father didn't want him to go. His father was paid was was quite well paid. Was unfortunately suffered from TB, so he uh, he did die relatively early. Mm -hmm. And he used to actually come on stage and say, "I'm coughing well tonight," um, <laughs> which would have cleared the hall these days, wouldn't it? Really. Um, mm -hmm. And um, but interestingly, on the records, I can't. Dem I obviously can't rush around and demonstrate all of these. Who, but George Formby Senior is very comfortable in the recording studio, even with the re the mechanical recording system, and he basically bounces things off the recording engineer and sometimes off the band that's accompanying him for the song part of his thing. And when there's bits of when he's finished early, he fills up the end space with something and, and sort of nodding around there, you know, he's like, oh, apparently we've got a bit more space left on the record. I'll keep on talking until you run out. Does anyone know where there's a beer that wants a home? <laughs> I, I love hearing things like that because as a, as a, you know, as a comedian of some kind myself, like there's always, there's the temptation to be, excessively self-aware and you're like well is this too much am i being you know too masturbatory for the medium like can i just stop or cut it off like at some point no you're a performer through and through so i think acknowledging yeah. what's going on is kind of brilliant yes yeah and and it, but it, it is so interesting to hear that really early on mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that some people engage with it and some people just couldn't and there are people that they wanted that they did get on record and you're going why was this person paid that amount of money mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're not funny well they probably were very funny in front of their own audience for sure they, just didn't, they didn't translate onto record well i think um, the ones that i mean you obviously went out of your way to pick ones that are either monologues or dialogues that are sp that do not require you know you know we, we don't we don't need to see them when it's there's plenty to picture uh which is the challenge like of these good records the best ones tend to be the ones that leave enough to your imagination or just like you say uh, just strictly these monologues well yeah some people and and sometimes that is their stage act because remember, you don't you don't come onto stage in a in a music hall or a variety performance in that period, with a lot of scenery and a lot of effects with you. You've got to come sure. on and create the 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 scene. So some of the some of the monologue pieces are just are, are basically sometimes they're front of curtain pieces. They're not scenic pieces at all. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they have to you you have to create that with whatever costume you've got well costume on you know, when it's only on the record or on radio is going to be voice 
So it'll be whatever character you're creating with the voice. Mm-hmm. But uh, otherwise, you've just got costume and not much else but to, to, to reinforce what you're doing. So there was quite a lot of that. And also, the British Music Hall um, tradition, um, well, actually, the British Music Hall law at one point was you couldn't come along and do anything that was theatrical. So if you did anything that was effective, almost had to have a song in it because you were allowed to do songs. Mm-hmm. And it and it was allowed to be a monologue, uh, but you couldn't do anything that was a theatrical performance because the other the, the theatres had the license on that. So they sailed they sailed close, but it created a lot of these sort of um, comic monologues, um, some of which are better than others depending on when they were done. Sure, but uh, there's some very quick things that people do. I mean, I like early stuff. Um, the uh, I mean, they've only got on the very early cylinders, they've only got about two minutes, and the later ones have got about four. And most popular records are 10 inch 78s in shellac, and they run about three minutes. But quite a, some monologue stuff gets both sides of the record, um, so you get a six minute piece. Mm-hmm. But you've got to be pretty tight on these things. But when you're doing a two minute cylinder, you've got to fit everything in really quite quickly. There's a chap called Charles Cardo who does a piece called Shopping, which is about being a, a 1905 shop assistant. And he has some, and, and they run these weird little phrases in front of you. It, it, it's, it's some, there's a little bit of surrealism goes on these things. He says, Hello, Mrs. Neverpaid. I haven't seen you since the last time we met. You're looking well. Have you been ill? <laughs> and there's a whole rattle. Hey, wait a minute, why would you? What happens? To you? He's saying everything and nothing, you know. Uh huh. Uh huh. And um, oh, I think it's R. G. Knowles who does a piece called My. Um, it might be in My Wife's Relations. It doesn't matter which record it is. But he talks about being left some money in the will and going up to the big house to go and you know, go and claim his inheritance. Uh-huh. He said, and a funny chap, uh, funny old chap answered the door, face all covered with skin. Anyway, he let me in. I mean, this is the kind of... It's several seconds later, you go, wait a minute. What do you mean? <laughs> fa- oh, I, you go, uh, and you go, no, hang on. Everybody's got a face. What? <laughs> the, and the drier, obviously, that is... That is one of the great qualities of good English humor is the just excessive dryness. But that is just, but the dryness mixed with the absurdity that becomes, you know, where Python may have been influenced by the goons, but Python could also do that very thing that you're talking about. I apologize, by the way, you're going to hear a lot of me referencing three English things, even though I'm fascinated with English comedy. I'm way more familiar with Python. Um but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's that that is one of my favorite types of things too. It's just very much like you do not get a second to process it, and if you if you miss yeah. it, you yes. you know you're not dead in the water because there's going to be another one coming along any second. <laughs> yeah. But oh my yeah. gosh, when when did you first get interested in old records though? Because you're not an ancient gen- gentleman, so I want to know. Oh, why. I'm old enough now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm old enough to start appearing in that that vulnerable part of those graphs they keep showing you. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's, uh, I suppose, oh gosh. Now, it's really things that were hanging around in the the family. My grandparents on one side had... um, had records and when we used to go down and visit they had some old records 
as well as some uh, some vinyl, as well as some shellac. Mm -hmm. And occasionally we got to play some of these things, which took us, some of them took us way back because there are, um, uh, the, on the old records, there was Stanley Holloway monologues, which is one of which is Sam, Sam, pick up the musket, which is a long, a long story. Yeah, the most, the best known Stanley Holloway monologue of that period is The Lion and Albert, which gets trotted out in this country far too often and badly. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> Although he does it very well. Um, so that's uh, that, that's late 1920s monologue, which is uh, it's a sort of slow burn thing, really, because it's only one long, long, complicated situation comedy sort of joke. I don't, you don't know, Sam, Sam, pick up the musket. I is, don't. Uh, basically, the, the 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 plot is that there it's the eve of the um, the the battle of battle of Waterloo. And they're all lined up, and the uh, sergeant walks along the the ranks and knocks the knocks Sam's musket out of it out of his hands, and it lies on the floor. And he tells him to pick it up, and he says, "You you knocked it down, so you pick it up, or it stays where it is on the floor." And basically, the whole thing escalates through the ranks until the um, the Duke of Wellington has to come up and ask him nicely to pick his musket up, so they can start the fight. <laughs> But it, it's each escalation, of it, and he does, and each time, even though it's a monologue, the the accent, because it's very British in this case, the accent changes from the sergeant's accent to the captain's accent to the colonel's accent to the general's accent to the Duke of Wellington's accent. I love it. But uh, but with this terribly uh, ter terribly um, uncooperative or very. Well, a very egalitarian, you know, soldier. You know, it's like oh, you, you, they picked it up, so they knocked it down, so they pick it up and stairs where it is on the floor. But um, so uh, yeah, so we had that. But also moving into the vinyls, an odd mixture of things. My great aunt went was uh, was went to America for a tour with her husband, who was doing stuff about. Um, health services, would you believe? Now, that's very topical for us. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, but anyway, when she was over there, she came across, um, uh, well, she got a record of, uh, do you know Anna Russell? Yes, I do. I've got a couple of her records sitting around. Yeah, and um, so we had the, um, uh, the the Ring Cycle and the Write Your Own Gilbert Sullivan. Mm-hmm, okay. You know the Ring Do you remember the Ring? Uh, yes, I, I, well, <laughs> you, you know, the... <laughs> I think I, I, I I can't remember if I enjoyed it or not. I feel like it might have been one of the ones I suffered through when I was trying to listen to a record a day a couple of years ago and oh, failed. Oh right, okay. I failed oh, no, miserably. In the mood. No, she's she's. I think she's very clever. I I yeah. enjoy. It. Um and um yeah, she plays. She was Australian actually. She didn't. She hmm. she died actually. She died about 2012, I think. Okay. Uh, but um she did a lot. But I like that she gets to a bit in the Gilbert and Sullivan one and going. And now this. You'll have to bear with me, she said, because she does all the parts. She said, because my quartet singing isn't what it used to be. And <laughs> <laughs> she goes through all these extraordinary parts. Love it. But, um, I think, I think it's one of these odd things where it would be tricky if you didn't have some grounding, not a lot, but some grounding in either the Gilbert and Sullivan or the or or the Wagner, just to get the idea. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think you need a lot, but um, 
Yeah, I think it's not. I mean, but she, you know, but that was, I'm just saying that was one of the things that turned up. So it had that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also had, now, do you know Flanders and Swan? I do. I am not excessively familiar, but yes, I do have a friend over here who swear, swears by them. So, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, they, uh, and they're, and, and they are what I call, they're, they're, oddly enough, they are really quite satirical, Flanders and Swan, mm-hmm. in a time when other people were being, shall we say, claiming to be satirical, but were just more out- outrageous or just <laughs> not as satirical. There are things that Flanders and Swan do, which you go, oh, I didn't, you don't realise until years later when you're introduced to the child that the song about the bindweed and the honeysuckle is, is political. Mm-hmm. Right, right, okay. I don't know if you know that one. I've heard it. And you yeah. know what? You're gonna you you may actually have you're gonna be the person to introduce me to how political it is because I think the first time I heard it was years ago. Yes. Well, when it gets to the end, so the the two plants are making a liaison and wanting to run away from their families or whatever it is. But mm-hmm. at the end, is it you know they 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 found them the very next day. They pulled up their roots and just shriveled away. If deprived for that right for which we must fight to turn to the left or to turn to the right mm-hmm. <laughs> but i'm gonna have to look it up because I, I i i know well, i know the whole point about it is it, it's a delightful little song and it's got some yes. clever bits in it and only at the very end does do they poke that bit of uh, of social commentary into it if you're just sampling you go oh this is a nice yeah, it's a nice enough song but what's it about you know right right <laughs> I, you know, and I, I'm certain now. Yes, you're, you're now telling. I'm 100 percent sure I now have to re-listen to it. I, yeah. th- again, this is a, uh, this friend of mine who introduced me to them is yeah. very much one of those people who I think is just patient with me if I do not get something <laughs> immediately. I, I, I'm one of those people who are like, oh, of course I'm a comedy connoisseur, but there are definitely things that fly well above my head. I, at least I'll admit it. Uh, but you know, uh, I, I love. So you know, it's funny though. Is so. You are fascinated with the the tech aspect of all these records as well. You make records. You make not just records. You make cylinders. Um, and when I originally contacted you, I couldn't be sure based on your website because again, you're like, no, we make these. You know, one assumes <laughs> it's mostly music. I couldn't be sure that you actually gave a crap about the comedy stuff, but clearly that stuff stuck stuck out to you as a kid. Oh well, uh, a large amount. Of, yes, I mean that came actually came to some of it from that point of view. Not necessarily. Um, well, yeah, I think because once I started collecting the older records, mm-hmm. I could find other things which which I liked, which which linked in. So I already had that relationship with the um, Stanley Holloway monologues and so on. Mm-hmm. And then I began to find things that looked the same, and then I began to you know listen to things on that format um the nice thing is you get small samples of things you don't have to find a lp and then find the one piece on it that you like you either Fair. like the record or you don't <laughs> um so yeah um yeah so i i really it, it, no the the the, the I, it's it's multi multifaceted bit of work really my interest in what's on the records is in a different domain than the different than the than the technicality of it. Obviously, you know how they're made, and both things interested me. But uh, I haven't really. I must admit, I can't. Yeah, I, I don't do the technical bit for artistic reasons or the artistic bit for technical reasons. <laughs> That's fair. I that is fair. I don't 
I'm, and that's the interesting. I'm not, although I like a nice, you know, a, a good sounding record, I'm interested enough to listen to things which perhaps have been a bit worn or weren't recorded terribly well in the first place in order to get the, get what was going on and see what, you know, and appreciate the people from the, you know, the early years of the, of the process. You know, that's uh, one thing we've discussed a lot is uh, that exact, there, there is a method of having to put yourself in the mindset of somebody who is listening to it when it first came out, because some of these things are not going to instinctively necessarily even give you a chuckle. But I do feel like there's there's a little, for me anyway, there's a little bit of effort that goes into it. Let me see, would I have found this funny if there was nothing <laughs> else going on? Would I have found this funny? You know, you, there's only so much uh, playing that you can do. Do you do you find yourself having to put yourself in a certain mindset to listen to any of these things? Uh, well, it depends. Hmm, it depends what it is. You see, the thing is, some people... Hmm, yeah, okay. Do I have to... Hmm. Yes, up to a point, and I'm just trying to think how these things turn up because some of these things become discoveries as you get them. I mean, mm -hmm. I've stopped collecting because I've got room for much more. <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, uh, yes, pretty much, having said that. But as you discover them, then the mindset is, what's on here? And then sometimes as you get, so fortunately, it's usually only three minutes, you get halfway through and you're going, mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> on the other hand, you go, this is a real treat, you know. It's like, yeah. how did they get this on? The other thing is with these very short pieces, um, in some cases, they can be really quite uh, remarkably tightly put together and quite quite intense on certain things. And you're going, that's remarkable. And you really have to you know, put it down for a minute and then possibly play it again. You know? Yes. Uh, and you get so you can get more out of it than you've got than if you've got quantity. Mm -hmm. You can't, you know, especially if you're only buying these things when you see them. Oh, I like so and so. Let's get, let's try that record. It's very difficult to. In fact, it's a very bad idea to have a binge listen to all of one performer, because then you go, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you go, no, just you can have one of those and <laughs> one right. of them, two you of those. I hadn't really put a whole lot of thought into the whole idea that uh, because I think the temptation is always to like figure out what stage are we in uh, in new media uh, that they might have been at the beginning of other media. And I'm obviously only interested in the comedy end of it. Uh, but the whole idea of this sort of limited, you know, you've only maybe I'm only going to make the one cylinder. Maybe I'm only going to make the 178. So it's got to be my tightest, you know, three minutes or six minutes. And I've got to pack a lot in and really this 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 could be my only chance and i i've i don't know that's one of those things i don't really think about is is having to to tweak your maybe you don't have to maybe it's already perfectly built for it but well, maybe you, yeah, you know it's a good it's a good point remembering that some of these people the the numbers of people are, depending on where you are on the bill didn't necessarily have lo a long turn on the show you see you you talk that's the other thing um uh, Yes, what governs what I don't know, but mm -hmm. in the period, in the earlier period we're looking at, middle of the middle of the range, well, we're talking about comedy particular, but middle of the range comics might have a four minute piece. Mm -hmm. um, Albert Whelan uh, made, started um, started his work in Australia and came over to work on the. Um, most people gravitated to London if you're doing musical. Mm -hmm. He came over to London and 
then obviously you end up back at the bottom of the bill when you've come from somewhere else where you were moderately famous. And uh, he said, oh, he said, you can have, he said, oh, I've got a six minute set. And they said, oh, no, no, if you're starting off, we can give you three. And he said, mm, okay. And his, his act starts with him walking nonchalantly on stage in a top hat, white silk scarf and white gloves and whistling, um, what is it? Um, oh, I think it's the Jolly Brothers. Dee, dee, dee. And he'd come on nonchalantly, so he's make, taking up the space and he'd put all this, he'd take all this clobber off and pop it on a chair very systematically. So he's really established who he is and he's ready to talk to the people now he's come in, you know. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of his act, he goes off by putting that all on and still whistling. Okay. In between, there's a comic turn. Right. And they told him they could, he could have three minutes, not six. So he came on took all his stuff or put it on the chair. That was a minute and a half and then continued whistling, put it all back on again and walked off. So they did agree on the second night to give him six minutes. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> I won't cut the beginning and the end. Oh, I love and if that. you want the middle, you're going to have to give me enough time. <laughs> that is, that is a stubborn artist. That is uh, a specifically a very, uh, that's a comic artist too. You know what you picked? Uh, uh, because again, I know you through under, knowing about your record company. Uh, yes. And I'm fascinated by people who do this stuff. Uh, but then the first thing you actually emailed me, which I had forgotten you had sent this to me, um, okay. right. was uh, was John Tilly's The Loch Ness Monster. Oh, yes, yes. But yes. you specifically notated that you've been known to perform this one. So oh, yes. where have you performed it and why? Because this is fascinating <laughs> to me. Uh, well, we have we have when we when we're allowed to get together in more than sixes with a barbecue and yeah bring your own you know, yeah <laughs> bring your own charcoal <laughs> we have quite a quite a number of sort of storytelling groups and years ago um if i, if I didn't if i didn't always have a story but this is a story you know it is a story so mm -hmm. i can just put the sort of um zookeepers you know park keepers hat on and uh, do the Loch Ness monster story. So, quite good for sort of Halloween, I suppose. And yeah. <laughs> oh my and, goodness. And, and um, yes, it's all got things that are slightly unacceptable in it now. I think, apart from you. Know, well, no, sure. it's, it's fairly harmless, apart from Miss Carruthers, the Loch Ness spinster. Mm. <laughs> Definitely electing herself to some non-consensual behaviour with the monster. I think. At some yes. Point. Yes. Right. <laughs> Um, but it's what he doesn't say. It's interesting with John Tilly, and it, he was, um, he was, um, uh, I don't know what he would say. He was a salesman. I think it must have been cleaning equipment, which he was hawking around various places, businesses, and he'd have a suitcase full of stuff. And he went to a theatre to the manager and said, look, I've got these brushes and this, you know, whatever it is, obviously, you know. And, and he was so inept at selling, but they thought it was so funny. The chap invited other people into the office to watch him trying to sell stuff to him. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I'm not going to buy any of that. But what are you doing on Friday? <laughs> Could you do this on stage? <laughs> and That's then he remarkable. 
and then he started making these other things and he was he was both on stage and on the bbc so he he would do these as monologues on the radio because they'll work they work on record on radio and on stage mm-hmm. and they're very again it's very simple he only needs to have the the attitude obviously the script and and the hat you know depending yeah. on what he did and the and again there's also i there's some surrealistic things that he does as well um in some ways the Loch Ness Monster is the least surreal one apart from the fact that the monster the monster talks in Morse code and learnt it from the uh, transatlantic cable (laughs) Uh, that's why he speaks Morse with an American accent (laughs) such a dumb joke that's very much my style of of humor which is I don't know if that's sad or if that just means it's very good that it's that it's lasted that it still stands the test of time this is that's funny because okay so obviously I didn't know anything about John Tilly so you give me yeah. this one piece of information a, a few weeks ago I spoke with a, a good friend of this show named Ned Hastings about an American comic well I hesitate to actually call him a comic his name is Jerry Clower and this gentleman made about 25 records in a in as many uh, years and yeah. in the 70s and uh, 60s and 70s and uh, he was a salesman but supposedly such a good salesman and such a good, just so convincing and he could just spin a yarn and then you listen to the records and it's like, I get that he was charming and had a great deal of energy. Yes. But not for me. We'll just say that. He's uh, not the fun, not exactly my style, but very, he's funny in terms of, he sounds funny. You get that he, and he's landing with with all the right people. I just find it, I'm more fascinated by a failure of a salesman who is yes. so so bad yeah. and funny. That is, yes. that's and the John, English version. I mean, that's great. And John, yeah, and John Tilly is um, he's good. He's considering. You know, we can only listen to him not having an audience. You know, just sure. talking. Basically, it's nobody. Nobody is amused by it while he's making the recording, and obviously mm-hmm. with the radio, it'll have been the same. But he does. He does seem to work his timing pretty well, mm-hmm. and he's not, and he's the things that he says. Of course, he's none of what he says in any of his characters that he does are is expecting a laugh, right? Funny because of who he is, as opposed to him working an audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, the only one that there's effects on is one called the company promoter, which I've always enjoyed. It's got some lovely phrases in, but company promoter is somebody who is, well, you may know, but it's a phrase for somebody who's basically trying to placate the shareholders when the whole thing's going down the toilet. Okay. (laughs) Or the John, as we'll say for your rest of builders. Um, or in this case it is, the company promoter is basically telling you what's been going on in the company. Uh, a limited company, and he has the United Smelter Smelter Brass Bottle Tin Whistle and Zinc Ointment Company Limited. Um, <laughs> but um, it's the things he throws away in there. It's his, um, um, the, the profit and loss account. Have we got a cup? He has got somebody on the sidelines saying yes and no to him and things like that. We've got a copy of the profit and loss account. So we've lost it. We've lost, uh, um, there's no copy of the profit and loss account, but it's a very one-sided document in any case. <laughs> And our auditors this year have told us that business, if any, is on the incline. <laughs> I gotta say, your uh, you your capacity 
for pulling these from your memory is quite remarkable. I can't do that anymore, but I guess, are these sticking with you from childhood? Like, or did you listen to some of these as an adult first? Because... Um, oh gosh, now that's a good question. Um, I did, um, I've done, because I, I've performed some of, anything that I've actually performed is probably slightly better stuck there than anything I just listened to. And I think, oh, that was funny. Fair. Um, so I've performed the Loch Ness Monster and I've performed um, the uh, company promoter. Mm -hmm. But also I quite often, you know, like to quote that one. People, how's things going? Or business if any is on the incline. Because <laughs> it's another one of those two seconds later, something, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I rewrote the, uh, I did that one when we had the, when, when we had the other thing, the financial crisis in 2008, I think I rewrote it at the end for some current, business references that were going on at the time um so it was quite appropriate but um you yes. know you mentioned something earlier um one of the sketches uh you're gonna have to remind me i didn't write it down um oh no it was the uh, oh my goodness the one with the musket my god my brain is just fried oh sam sam pick up the musket yes. thank you yes yeah, so you mentioned that that is a bit where uh accents are also utilized uh, in in such a way to add to the humor, I I think that okay. So uh, bear with me. Um, as a person who, while born in England, has been obsessed with English comedy because, as a kid, uh, you know, I felt like a real outsider. Uh, when I was first exposed to English comedy, there's definitely an element of finding it funny because everybody talked differently than I do. There's no doubt in my mind. That's part of it. I And I think a lot of Americans who love English comedy like Python are really a lot of the times reacting to th these voices because they are uh, effectively foreign, but obviously we speak the same language. Um, but knowing that there are a lot of English comics who also have done, who because for such a small island, there are so many damn accents, uh, you know, there, there's a lot to be played with it. It is this tool that I don't think we have in America because not everybody in America really knows we get very isolated. So somebody in, in one state might not know what a Boston accent sounds like. So it's not, doesn't mean anything to hear that. I want to know if that is an element of English comedy or am I just totally making that up where it's, you, you have this as a tool in your comedy belt. Uh, well, Mm, yes. Well, there are two things mm -hmm. I think about that. Um, over a long period of time, these things turn up because somebody with a there, there is there are national accent stereotypes which people use. Sure. Um, and they are shorthand for something. Mm -hmm. Um. You know, depending on the national stereotype, of course there are you know, even variations um, across uh, you know, across the various regional accents as well. But of course, there's the um, you know, there's the story about how you tell the difference between an Edinburgh and an Aberdeen accent. Mm -hmm. And do you know how to do that? I don't. I warn you, there's a bad joke coming up. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> you see, they say that um, if you're in Edinburgh about this time of day, about sort of five o'clock in my time, it's not whatever time you've got there, but um, and you turn up in Edinburgh and you knock on somebody's door, they'll answer the door and they say, have you had your tea? 
But if you go to Aberdeen and you knock on the door at the same time, they'll come to the door and say, you'll have had your tea. Uh-huh. Yeah. Hog's <laughs> trying to work there. So, uh-huh. it's not, there's no difference in the accent, although there probably is. Uh-huh. It's precisely what's said. Fair. So if you go to the story is this is probably put about by Edinburgh people who think that people in Aberdeen are mean. Mm-hmm. Okay. So think about what I said, although you may not have cottoned on. In Edinburgh they say, "Have you had your tea?" Sure. And in Aberdeen they say, "You'll have had your tea." <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that is. Uh, <laughs> it, that's pretty great. Uh, <laughs> You know, what's funny, too, is now that you bring that up, I think the first comedy I ever listened to was Billy Connolly, who uh, very much just liked to make fun of uh, Glaswegians. Uh, but just but if I'm not mistaken, he is Glaswegian. I could yes. be wrong. Yeah. So yeah. he just he's just <laughs> he would treat them all like they were punks, which I thought was very, very <laughs> funny. Uh, some of my, I, I, and I'll tell you, that is a learning curve as a kid. If you're, if, if you're used to American accents, just graduating immediately to the Scottish accent, any Scottish accent is a challenge, but, uh. Oh gosh. Yes. Yes. It's not the, oh gosh. <laughs> uh, yeah. The, um, broad Glaswegian is, um, yes, practically incomprehensible where it exists <laughs> these days. Mm-hmm. Sometimes deliberately so. Uh-huh. Uh, very thick Yorkshire used to be like that. And, um, a lot of these things are getting dissolved. I had a short, well, I shortly appalled by somebody who was talking about trying to uh, trying to get their young daughter to stop saying, stop using your you know, Yorkshire vowels or whatever it is, and trying to. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yes, I. So I have, yes, they yeah. they they'd accidentally dro- they'd accidentally drop their flashlight into the mailbox, you know, and going, you what? you see the thing is especially when you look at this early stuff that i'm that i've listened to there's also quite a lot of stuff in code in Mm -hmm. the you have to know what certain things mean or who they're referring to in order to get the joke Mm -hmm. Um, and some of this is due to basically inherent censorship i'm sure we'll get back to these code words in things soon you know <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right my goodness um so uh because they because are in the early well the late 19th century and the early 20th century the musical stuff was um was beginning to be quite heavily censored as to what you were allowed to do it was getting cleaned up shall we say mm-hmm. by the time it got onto recordings which were recordings were mostly but not exclusively they were were, were early on destined for the better off middle classes although to be honest it, it, it cranked down to things which are actually quite subversive on on some of the cheaper labels mm-hmm. um but uh yeah so there are sort of code things that, that go on there that that, that that if you know what they're talking about um it's a lot funnier inherently or would have been in its time because they're playing with the audience again we all know, but we're not allowed to say this out loud. Right. right. Oh, I love that. I, it, it's um, so incredibly I mean, punk. Well, what, although Mari Lloyd was famous for being taken to court for doing things that they decided were too lewd, you know, 
Um, but she, yeah, there's a very gentle thing in one of her songs, which I think is which is an allusion to something, which only uh, only an audience who've got certain because the other thing's a problem is commonality. You you pretty much need to you need to know some some Shakespeare and some general biblical stuff to understand certain things that they mm -hmm. allude. Um, Faming sort of favourite rhyming couplet I think on on one of Murray Lloyd's one is a song called um, It's All Right in the Summertime which is about an artist model who has to pose for her husband's paintings um, and they, they rhyme um, all his oh, he's an artist in the Royal Academy all his paintings take the tip from me a very very even Adamy Wow <laughs> And that's why she's complaining because she has to stand in the backyard while he's painting with basically nothing on. But at no point does she say in the song that she's, you know, she's got very little clothes, you know, but mm -hmm. even Adam -y. It's like, yeah, you know, so all those allusions, those pictures of Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, basically just fig leaves, you know, you have to have that as something in your audience's mind. Yeah. So, you know, and that would be in the, that would be obvious to an audience of the time mm -hmm. um there is a song which is actually called the little shirt my mother made for me uh-huh now okay i'm going to quiz you what do you think that's i'm honestly what do you think that's reference to my brain is spinning and i can't possibly <laughs> i don't know <laughs> well the first verse refers to basically on the day he was born and then his mother lies him in the cradle in the little shirt my mother made for me uh-huh um it's a reference to being naked it's your skin brilliant it's the little shirt your mother made yeah <laughs> your mother oh my god later on basically somebody steals his clothes on the beach and he has to walk home in the little shirt my mother okay. made from love it right? my good it god. might it might twig in context when you go through three verses sure but it is <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the, with our audience, the, the illusions to these things, you know. Isn't that? I mean, that's always the fun thing too about trying to get by a sensor. Sensors either uh, have no sense of context sometimes, or aren't weirdly or not up on how people are thinking or speaking, and therefore are useless at their jobs. Um, so censorship, uh, you know, generally is useless uh but it does it does provide obviously that challenge and i'm always fascinated about what people do with it to get around it to work within it um because uh, you know rarely do people censor themselves in a way that entirely makes what they're doing toothless although i'm sure it's happened <laughs> yes it's difficult now i having said to get back to my well, back to my business as it were so occasionally mm -hmm. i do things which are well projects which are um, destined to go onto cylinder because of because of art. Mm -hmm. I love doing them, but they can all be a bit curious on occasions. Mm -hmm. And quite a number of years ago, somebody did an art project where we had a number of cylinders and they were little short ones and they were going to be put in a frame and they couldn't actually be played. And they were placed in a number of, they were going to be placed as a display in a number of theatres. And each one of these cylinders contained a short section of Lenny Bruce talking about being censored. Oh, my God. <laughs> that is holy. That's fantastic. 
<laughs> that might I, here. Let me say this: that might be the best use of that material ever, if only because <laughs> some of that stuff is rough. And I like Lenny Bruce, but holy cow, that's amazing. That is beautiful. It, 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 he does a description of you know. So I do this joke, and then <clears throat> nine o'clock the following morning, a policeman stands up and reads it out of his notebook. You know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow, <clears throat> that is. Uh... That is, uh, wow, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just like kind of taken aback. That is a, a brilliant piece of <laughs> playable art that you just are not allowed to play. Good God, that's so nice. That is so, and I love that they found you and they're like, hey, can you do this and- You do sure. this. I love it, I love and it. It was, <clears throat> it was an homage to, what's his name, Mondrian? The, um, because of red, red, blue, white, and black and then stacked in a square. Oh, okay, wow. <laughs> sideways on so i love that that's beautiful <laughs> the thing is also when i do any of these recordings i end up having to listen to the thing and cut it and do and having to balance everything and so i got fairly familiar with the pieces you know <laughs> oh sure of course I mean, what is what are the challenge i'm curious what kind of we may just need to get into the technical part of it but what do you use to cut a cylinder uh, the majority of the work I do is cut, um, I have to make, well, God, it starts from nowhere because I have to make the blank first, which is made out of a wax-like material. Mm -hmm. um, then that has to be machined into something with a smooth surface on it. That is then cuttable, you can cut the groove in that. And then I have an electrical, electrically powered recorder head for it, which cuts the groove, basically, so I feed that with signal from an amplifier and cut the, the record. So most of the stuff I cut commercially is electrically cut and it comes from all sorts of parts of the world as you know, MP3s or WAV files or something like that. Yeah. Wow. Um, occasionally in a project I'm doing, which isn't nearly as amusing, but very interesting, I do stuff where I'm cutting stuff um, acoustically. Um, and a few years ago, we did a reenactment of a an early recording of a full symphony orchestra, which is a nightmare to do, especially oh when you've heard the beginning of Beethoven's fifth for the seventh time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm recently doing stuff with um, uh, investigating how people play differently. It's a bit like how you perform differently. So the investigation there is from classical musicians who are going, are the records we're hearing like the way the people performed or did they perform differently when they were performing for the early recording equipment? Yeah. Um, and again, the other thing you can say about early recordings is there are some people who are, well, one or two are definitely only studio performers mm -hmm. who basically did cover versions of things. And there's a chap called Harry Bluff who worked for Edison Bell over here. And, um, he did cover versions of Dan Lino's stuff, and he wasn't phased. He, he wasn't phased by working into a recording horn. Um, hmm. So his patter is quicker, smoother, and more like probably more like Lino on stage. Mm -hmm. Lino felt he could be like in the recording studio. Wow. Um, so yeah. So but he you know, and there was there were no real copyright things, so they just get his latest thing. <laughs> that is <laughs> yeah, right. Let's do that. That's kind of amazing. I don't think I've ever heard it. There's something that we've I've discussed before on the show and with other people who are interested in it. The just the sheer idea of non-theft comedy covering, but th I mean that is a case of, you know, comedy theft, but it is also like maybe improved upon and and for a specific medium uh yes. that he was better for it. My god. Well, it's also cheaper. 
Sure. <laughs> sure. Because he was there all the time because he worked for the company full time and used to do all the announcements for everybody else and then filled uh -huh. in with other material. But he did hundreds of records, a lot of Dan Leno cover stuff, but also various other people. Yeah. And he's pretty much himself, but with the uh, with the delivery. So, you know, he doesn't... I don't don't get that he impersonates anybody's particular voice, but certainly the delivery. Right. That is fascinating. And you've got to get it about right, because a number of, you know, lots of people went to the theatre then to see these people live, so if you mm. turned up, you're not... You're not impersonating anyone as such. Um, yeah. But um, mind you, having said that, um, they also did... Uh, so uh, the singer Peter Dawson, who you possibly don't know... I do not. No. He was an Australian baritone with an incredible range and an incredibly long career. He recorded on Cylinder in 1904 and on vinyl in 1954. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Wow, um, and um, he uh, he was he was employed by one of the companies because Harry Lauder was very expensive, and one of the people I just don't think he's terribly funny on record, and whether he was on stage I don't know, but he had mm -hmm. this very particular act where he was very skilled, but I don't find any of most of his material humorous. Okay, charming. Sure. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I'm not not sure about him to be honest. Uh, most of his stuff is songs and a bit of bit of rambling monologue, but not with much of a not with much of a joke in it. And when he does deliver a joke, I'm not convinced about the timing. Okay, um, <laughs> but let's not decry somebody who was getting eight hundred pounds a week in 1908. No, of course, boy, oh boy, <laughs> holy cow. <laughs> you can multiply that by five for dollars. Yes, right. Woof. That's uh And then you can multiply it into something like forty thousand pounds or something. Right, right. Or it's only ridiculous. In fact, actually it's interesting because Billy Williams, um, who's another Australian who did who made a lot of records, he was on stage, but he had a, a huge record career as far as he could, because he died in nineteen fifteen. But oh, he's one of the few people whose acoustic records remained in the catalogue when the microphone came in, because mm -hmm. it was still popular. Him and Enrico Caruso stayed in the catalogue. And who walks up in an airport but Sammy Davis Jr.? She discovered Matt Groening. Without your mom, we might not have had The Simpsons. Yeah, and uh, I have an Elton John story. You know who noticed that also was Jonathan Winters. Your dad was the first band I dropped ass into. There was Buddy Hackett, and Joey Bishop, and Jerry Vale, and Corbett Monica. And those are the ones that, that stick out in my mm -hmm. mind. So, of course, I watched Mork and Mindy. He comes over, Mork's here, Mork's here, oh my God. And he was hysterical. You're listening to Rarefied Air. But Billy Williams does something, one of his records... Um, where he does some not terribly on tune whistling at some point, and then um, says uh, he says something, to, and then he's sort of saying to the band and to you at home, he say thousand pounds a week, you know, <laughs> a bit of a joke about people who are getting a thousand pounds a week for doing practically nothing. I love it. <laughs> so these these little inside comments, um, and I, I find it interesting as well that you know we've got these sort of relatively apparently compartmentalized things but look at the things that make social comment or something that's in the news because some of this contains news mm -hmm. 
Um, some of the things that have lasted longer are sort of non non-topic specific and this is one of the problems with comedy is you know you know you get something that's really good this week because it's funny about so and so yeah but it's it's not you know it, it's not going to last it won't keep so there's yeah. no way yeah. you can give it to somebody and say look how funny that is you know <laughs> yeah, it would be funny if we were still you know if we were still at war with the right. germans <laughs> <laughs> It I would be funny if the Defense of the Realm Act was still in fa in place. Uh, <laughs> great song called "Down with Dora," which was we uh, in the First World War they brought in a thing in this country called the Defense of the Realm Act, mm -hmm. which stopped you stop stop children flying kites over railways, stopped you selling drugs, because up until the beginning of the First World War, you could go into most shops and buy heroin and. Whatever sure, sure. And the problem is that the well-to-do women who, or the, whose sons have been sent out to the to, to the front in 1914 were sending them little comfort packets of of heroin. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> Which had some sort of effect on <laughs> on their performance. <laughs> so it was decided to. So that's when we started. We didn't have any drug laws until until the First World War. So it was called the, the Realm Act, shortened to Dora. <laughs> And then in the 1920s, uh, they, they hadn't repealed most of it when mm -hmm. we weren't at war. And um, the uh, comedy, comedy duo Flotsam and Jetsam did a song called Down With Dora, complaining about the things you weren't, <laughs> weren't, still weren't allowed to do 10 years after the war had finished. God, isn't that fascinating? That is... I'm I uh, I'm pulling up your website again because there's something that's kind of that fascinates me. I love that you do what you do, but I want to know what made you think that it was an okay thing to do to just start making cylinders again. With you know, obviously these are for most people going to be a novelty uh, or or a curiosity, but I want to know like what led you to think this might be a business model. Did somebody at some point say, "Hey, do you know how to make these?" Or I, I how does this come about? Oh no! It's a, it's a completely it's, it's a completely unreasonable self-propelling thing. Mm -hmm. I um I have done this for quite some time. I mean, you know, whereas I'm not quite getting onto ancient, I'm certainly getting onto older. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, it's one of these things that not exactly just happened, but it's probably been on and off for a bit. So the yeah, let me see if I can just. Mm, shorten it a bit so <laughs> uh, when uh, when i got interested in the whole recording stuff sort of in my late teenage period and started collecting records and understanding about gramophones and wanted to record on the cylinder and at that point and now you couldn't really do a lot of experiments on the cylinder unless you had some blanks to record on and they're yeah. not plentiful yeah. <laughs> they're not plentiful the records are not plentiful but the blanks are actually much less plentiful um, so it was necessary to learn how to make them, and I was teamed up with um, uh, was with somebody via um, one of the societies who uh, was also interested in making the records, uh, making the blanks. And uh, this was 1980, 1981. Mm -hmm. So we had a long time ago, back <laughs> all those years ago. <laughs> um, and uh, we started off making blanks for ourselves and other people, and that led to making a few records. Now, there was a bit of a demand then, but nothing. it's never been a big demand for these things. Um, sure. So, there are a lot, so you have to remember that um, 
dear old much much maligned because that's what you do these days uh, thomas edison um <laughs> had to malign him mm-hmm. <laughs> um thomas edison you know anyway so the edison company produced just the edison company now other people were making these machines but they produced um two million machines capable of playing cylinders all right um up and between 1888 and 1929. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a lot of stuff. Yes. <laughs> now, remembering that other people were making them as well, but also they made them very well, and they, you know, they, you know, with modest amounts of refurbishment, most of them can be made to play, and with proper refurbishment, they can be made to play well. Mm-hmm. Um, and... As a consequence, you know, even if only a relatively small percentage of those survived, right, that's still a lot of machinery. For sure. Now, for a lot of those machines, the recordings are on a format which is um, fragile because a lot of the early ones are on a wax material which is quite breakable. Mm-hmm. And a lot of other ones are on a celluloid material which is a lot tougher, but then you don't necessarily get the tune you want on it. Yeah. Uh, so it does, su- you know, it does suggest that people who've got the machines might want to play something that they want to listen to on it occasionally. But no, it's more against um, why. It's sort of a why not. I have other jobs in between. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, I worked as a an electronics technician for a number of years, and then I moved into running my running a company making. Um, exhibits, hands-on and interactive exhibits for museums. Oh, interesting. Um, and when I decided to uh, to leave that field, I was doing other stuff as well in the sort of theatrical and public speaking area. I wasn't doing the speaking, I was training other people to do it. Okay. Which was great fun, but really difficult thing to sell for on the sure. basis of... Because I used to maintain that if you're doing stuff on public speaking... Normally, they'll send the person who's really tedious but not afraid of talking to an audience but mm-hmm. is a bit rubbish because they say they'll go, as opposed to the person who really should be talking about the subject because they know about it, but they're petrified. <laughs> and the petrified people won't sign up for a course for being not petrified <laughs> because they're petrified. Of course. The other people, the other people and I think the, the, the phrase these days is Dunning-Kruger, isn't it? The other people who think they're good at talking in front of people and aren't afraid are suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect. That, you know, <laughs> they, they believe they're better than they actually are. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Now, you know, I used to say, when I used to do my introductions to people trying to sell what I was doing, I used to say, you know, you know some people, some people talk in their sleep. So other people... The ones we really want to convert you from are people who talk in other people's sleep. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, but yeah, it's a, a difficult sale, and I used to I did a bit of uh, a bit of theatrical stuff, which, as you all know, is difficult to sell as well. Aha. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong. It's just you've got to get people out to something, and they've they've got to pay for a ticket, you know. Of course, yeah. All the rest rough. of it. So, um, um, so. In the background, all through the period from the early 1980s up until now, I've had the ability at various stages to make cylinder records, either in wax, and then I had several processes for making them in this plastic resin, which means that they don't break in the post. Oh, wonderful. Or when you play them. 
Right. And so I put that up as a sort of sideline, as an offering, and got myself into a situation where I've got relatively low overheads. So. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, it's a, it's a, what do they call it? A niche, no, a lifestyle business. I don't know what that means. So my lifestyle <laughs> is running up and down several flights of stairs doing different jobs. At the moment I'm doing, um, but I've also moved into being able to make um, 78 discs that can be played with a steel needle on, and I shall use I shall use the British and American nomenclature of on a gramophone, or as you would say, Vic Trola. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> or you might not, because it depends. It, it, generations have different names for these things now, and they, and now I think the the current generation of a what the hell is that, and how the hell can it work? <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> Very much the case. <laughs> but, I'm looking. So can I, I i do this is a totally side thing but yeah. who who does your graphic design it's very good oh got which graphic design uh very specifically first of all your logo is great and really does lend itself to the vintage look but also just the 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 vulcan cylinder company uh just the with the the person on it i, I literally had it up a second ago uh yes. but yes yeah it's wonderful um i a number of years ago, somebody who did graphic design did the little bit with the Vulcan and the swooshy bit on it, which is mm -hmm. quite simple but quite useful. I had to completely admit that I had no idea who did the design on the on the main part of the box because it is it is um, ooh, what shall we say? Um, <laughs> I have a I, this is Sheffield. Uh -huh. in, I'm in here. Sheffield used to be famous for cutlery until it was possible to import a ton of cutlery for less than the price of the steel to make it. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and uh, I have a friend from years back who used to go around and rescue stuff from abandoned cutlery works. And the character on the front is Vulcan, which of course is really the god of uh, volcanoes and steelwork. Mm -hmm. um, and it's... Um, I have to say, you know, I'm sure you won't shop me. This is only on, you know, and only available on World Wide Web, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So it's 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 borrowed from a from a cutlery label. That's amazing. <laughs> it's freaking fantastic. I mean, <laughs> it, it explains the vintage look, but holy cow, it's oh, easiest, it's delightful. Easiest way to do it: get somebody from nineteen twenty-two to do it for yes, you. Yes, right. Why not? <laughs> That's brilliant. You know what's so funny is, well, normally when we do these episodes, I I, I ask the person, hey, uh, why we normally stick with obviously one record. It's usually a full length record. I say, hey, why would you recommend uh, people listen to this record? Well, I'm now gonna leave it to you uh, to recommend or not recommend or go halfway uh, of an entire generation of comedy. I, I want to know, like. Give people a general idea of maybe why you got into it, uh, and and maybe why they might also be they might not be, but why they might get interested in it. Oh gosh, um, <laughs> I now, wanted to make it a big, a tall order. I really did. Okay, now that's fine. Here's the thing. I think, I think first of all, we need to look at what you know, what the different people in our audience at the moment are, are interested in. So. If you're interested in a particular period of history, it's worth seeking out a breadth across that period. So if you're interested in the sort of 
early 1900s, finding out what was comic and what people are doing in that period tells you something about that period. Now, you might not find all of it funny, but one or two, you will go, that still works. Mm-hmm. Right? And some of you go, what? But if you understand about the era, you will learn something. There's also social references in those particular things which are interesting even if the thing is is so long in the tooth that you don't necessarily get why it's funny yeah um but once you start to get your ear into that particular period you begin to see what's in common across it and you'll begin to get what the i said there's a there's a a rhythm and a coding for these things which um in different areas now there is something particular about where you are as well because there are one or two people in the uh, in the american canon of material who are really good and there are one or two and there are a lot of people who are doing cover versions of stuff there because they it's a difference about the sort of locality and the, and the expanse of the country mm-hmm. it happens the same with the songs um there's less there are people who are doing cover versions because people out so and so never saw somebody on stage mm. whereas somebody in london or in in the north of england there was a whole music hall circuit it's likely you saw george formby senior and then you bought the record yeah but actually yeah. what people wanted in the midwest was um, by the light of the silvery moon or whatever it is and they weren't quite sure who these people were singing it Mm-hmm. It didn't matter as long as they did a good job of it. So there's person. I think there can be something in the recording industry uh, which depersonalizes something and takes the humor off it. <laughs> That's interesting. If it's a humorous piece, yeah, uh, especially yeah. if it's a comic song. Now, some people really deliver comic songs really well, and I say I've, I've some people. Are, one person from an American point of view to look out for is Murray K. Hill. Mm-hmm. He has very good turn of phrase. He does do um, he does do a, a little bit to the audience, but he uh, but he does have some. He, he's quite fast patter, um, and with some quite you know, quite bizarre things going on. Um, so I quite like him if from from the American point of view. I think he must be on disc. He's mostly I know him from Edison Cylinders, um, and. Um, there's one of the sort of courtroom scene they said a little song to judge to judge well i'm not sure if it's to judge but um i have to say you may be deaf but you'll have your hearing in the morning <laughs> you know but he i can't do the whole thing but it, it's because he'll go straight on to the next one next one next one and so he doesn't mind if you miss it <laughs> right God, you know what? That's a level of confidence. <laughs> That's a level of confidence you don't often find, where it's just like bang, bang, bang. But you know, these yeah. are also people who have who have tweaked over years, possibly decades, their act to the point where you know this is a time when you could do the same act for thirty years and and get away with it. I think if you like, and again, I'm a little bit moving on to. I'll come back to some British stuff, but in that earlier period, we're talking pre-First World War here. In that earlier period, it's some of the things that are still interesting from their sort of delivery are things which are uh, wordplay or, or rapid wordplay. And again, trying to sneak things in. Um, there's a song I've got by um, Arthur Collins. It's on our list there on the, one of the Pink Lamberts called, uh, which is about a, ostensibly about a woman called Helen Gorn. Mm-hmm. Which has a whole chorus which allows him to say to Helen gone <laughs> over and over again, which is comical to an audience who's 
probably in the Bible Belt somewhere, you know. Uh-huh. Um, um, what's the other one? Uh, oh, yes, and the one, and another American one is about the um, chap at the railway station trying to buy a ticket to somewhere called Mora. <laughs> I want to buy a ticket to Mora. <laughs> You can't, but, well, you'll have to come back and do it then, you know, it's like this whole, <laughs> now you get that these things turn up both in the sort of later canon of the Abbott and Costello type stuff. Sure. Marx, you know, um, but uh, yeah, so it's sometimes quite interesting to look at those sort of wordplay, you know, those where they're playing with something and playing with the audience. Some of the other stuff, yeah, is is yes, it can get tedious. I, I try to keep away from um uh, the Uncle Josh monologues. Um do you know those? I've read about them because I know I was I was trying to dig, but I don't know if I've actually heard any now that you say it. You would know if you had. Okay. But, okay. Well, I mean I'm being very disparaging and I think it is interesting to go, okay, what are people interested? So Uncle yeah. Josh character is is yeah, you know, this sort of rural, you know, this rural chap who's taken aback by all these newfangled things that are happening generally, okay. or things that are happening in the um, happening in the village, and he does sort of professionally drone on in that way for quite a while. Uh-huh. Uh, I do know somebody who actually does uh, updates of him. Uncle Josh buys a computer, and Uncle Josh gets abducted by aliens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the pretext of that is quite good, but I'm not sure it makes Uncle Josh much funny. I'm trying to think of that there are, there are, there. It's it's just that sort. Of, I I don't know. Some people, I think it's interesting because of what he talks about, but I don't find it inherently funny. Nothing surprises you in it, um, mm-hmm. and but that doesn't mean that people didn't enjoy listening to to something that was this sort of familiar monologue with their relationship between these amazing things like you know, an automobile and a phonograph and a telephone and all the rest of it. But um, it's difficult to put yourself in that mindset. Whereas the word game things, it's actually still still sort of works as you're going, okay, I get, oh, I didn't know we were going there. You know, <laughs> so mm-hmm. when somebody's playing with that, you can still play with that. Um, so I think if you've got a period that you're interested in, a period of, time, of years, and again, First World War, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. If there's a particular period, then looking at the breadth of comedy in that period is interesting. But if you're interested in a particular type of comedy, um, that's different. And it's like if you want to sort of go through the sort of lineage of these things, it's finding people who had the eccentric material, shall we say, in the early years, um, as opposed to sort of what I would call pedestrian material of, you know, or, or not a lot of the, actually it's interesting, not a lot of these things work very well if the whole thing is a joke, because if it's on record, you've heard the punchline. Yeah. yeah. If it's the delivery that's funny and the, the anticipation, I mean, even Dan Leno, and he must've been good on so, but Dan Leno's record, and we did do this on stage with somebody, Dan Leno does something about the Tower of London and he's the he's a guide to the Tower of London, and I can't get I won't go all the way through it. But the whole uh-huh. point is that it's a repetition joke. Uh-huh. It's a repetition joke, and it's one of these things where he's basically 
his only interest is to take people around and get back to the refreshment room so he can have a cup of tea and a bun. <laughs> right? So every time he's referring to something in the tower and walking them around it, he's pointing out where the refreshment room is. <laughs> and the first time it's, you don't know, you, it's just, well, like, why would you, you, know, you sort of don't notice. The second time you're going, really? The third, you know, and by the time it gets, and, and at some point when he drops it in the fourth time, it's funny. Uh huh. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. There's nothing to it except it's the, okay, no, all right, all right, you're obsessed now, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> you're standing with your back to the, with the refreshment room, you get a magnificent view of the tower. And if we come over here, standing with your back to the tower, you get a magnificent room of the, refreshment <laughs> modern museums and visitor centers they're much more interested to get you into the refreshment room and the gift shop yes absolutely but otherwise you're wasting your time cluttering the place up mm -hmm. and not spending any more money <laughs> ah, i love it it's so good I, I i i think it's it's also worth listening to something where especially if you you know they've got a limited amount of time how much they can pack in to again that that two to well, it's two minutes on a cylinder, right? So roughly two, two minutes. Two minutes or four minutes. Now, it can be a problem. Mm. because they, were, they suddenly went for double density, as it were, in about 1907, 08. Oh, okay. Um, which caused all sorts of interesting technical problems. But it gave you a four-and-a-half-minute format, which, of course, is the same oh. as a 12-inch disc. Right. Which was what they were competing with. The only problem is that some people don't can't extend their material to be entertaining for that length of time. <laughs> right, right. Harry Lauder does a record called Breakfast in Bed, which I'd avoid if I were you. Uh -huh. <laughs> Except that Lauder does his little song about... And again, this is where his stuff doesn't really perk up. He talks about Sunday morning and lying in bed reading all the murder and divorce cases. And, um, your wife is in the kitchen. It's terribly... Whatever it is. It's terribly stereotypical and um, anti-feminine. Uh -huh. Or something anyway in the kitchen washing all the dishes and possibly breaking them <laughs> and then at some point he starts to cough and then for about a minute and a half in the middle of the record before he reprises the little chorus at the end he just coughs <laughs> and he goes on about it i'm gonna cough like this for years it's a terrible cough <laughs> holy shit I don't even no. know what to make of that. That's hilarious. Uh, and and they issue it, and you know, and they and they and and the Edison Phonograph Monthly, which is uh, he recorded it for Edison, uh, issue some little story, which I'm not entirely sure they didn't make it up about somebody playing this record at home, and it must have been an open horn phonograph because when 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 the child hears all this coughing, it's sufficiently trained to go out into the kitchen and come back with a bottle of cough medicine, pour it down the horn. <laughs> it is uh, delightfully stupid <sighs> but um yeah so i'm not sure whether i'm answering your question you did um, no you absolutely did <laughs> it's you know it's funny is a lot of the times when i ask people hey why do you want to listen to this record one of the and i and i don't in any way blame anybody for giving the same answer uh, a lot of the times it's, well, it's a snapshot of an era and it's absolutely true. A lot of, especially and that, which by the way, is usually a kind way of saying this is a bit outmoded or there are some outmoded pieces yeah. on it. <clears throat> but the thing is, it's always fascinating to, to, but the, but you're, uh, you have the good fortune of we're talking about an era and a technology 
and so uh, it crosses over a couple generations uh, and it's therefore you kind of get to hear a little bit of the evolution of comedy too and uh, and I don't know I think it's fascinating and this is also a thing where unless you're, you you know there are a ton of archives people should check out online uh, of cylinder recordings if you can't get your hands on the physical stuff or find somebody who has it um, it's, oh, uh, yeah, so it's you know it's very it's so much easier to get hold of than it was years ago, which is a mm -hmm. shame because I used to be able to go, you've never heard this record. Yes, right, <laughs> go, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've got it on here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The other thing is, I think in some of these cases, like we're having the conversation now, the difficulty, I think, especially now we're in a situation for the time being, or for, for a while, where you're not, where you're not sharing these things. Remember that quite a lot of recordings, and my early experience is that we'd be sat, we'd be sat around with the with the record player listening to it as a group yeah and the and whereas it's great to share these things as you can on the podcast and things like that which is really important so also when do we get the opportunity to share these things as a group i don't mean this as a oh no not from the point of view but these days when do we get to share it as a group so if you yeah. just lend you instead of saying let's listen to this and talk about it or let's talk about it a bit and let me play you this. And then it leads on to something else. So you go, oh, no, well, we like that one, but that's a bit like, so, you know, so I know we do this, you know, we, we used to do this and you used to say, oh, have you got anything by so-and-so? And then you go and get the record out and something yeah. else at the same time. You go, oh, how about this one? You know. And yeah. uh, so the experience of, of deliberately listening to records and, and talking about them, you know, as a group with a with a gramophone phonograph record player whatever you want to call it is um is, is less common these days the experience mm -hmm. of and i think it's difficult if you send it to somebody out of context because you absolutely. haven't created the atmosphere <laughs> it's it's <laughs> absolutely know? true i mean the the only reason i think i was uh, as receptive to the stuff you sent me is because obviously we 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 had some context we we, mm. we knew we were going to be talking about comedy we knew <laughs> we were going to be talking about scratchy comedy which is what we just should call this all it's yeah. always a little scratchy uh so yeah. yeah that works but yeah i i absolutely that's one of the things i try and avoid heavy nostalgia on this show but i do have nostalgia for getting together with people and sharing stuff with them there's nothing wrong with that you know that's a good kind of nostalgia i think yeah, no, I think I think your halfway point, or so, thinking about what we're doing now. So the podcast has the advantage that there's something being said about stuff, which is getting people to think about what they might listen to, and getting to understand the bit where it came from. Mm -hmm. Because it can be so easy to dismiss it on the basis of these people rubbish or. I mean, anyway, I do like um, um, the the limited number of um, of people who. Who recorded now? It's um, Williams and Walker, isn't it? So it was Williams, uh, Bert Williams. Mm -hmm. Very good. Bert Williams is good. He was um, he's a, he is good in the recording studio. He's an Amer American uh, performer. Although I think he, he came over here with a big show, which went down really well in this country. Mm -hmm. um, but he has a good, slightly lugubrious, slow delivery. Or something uh, he does a good song called Nobody. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there's a number of other good ones which are which are good which which work. But uh, yes, whenever I'm, yeah, well, whenever it's not got it's something about you know whenever I haven't got any money and I'm down and out, who is it says here's here have a here have a ten dollar bill, nobody. Mm -hmm. And the space <laughs> he leaves is perfect. Okay, okay. <laughs> and then there's a chorus about I don't get nothing from nobody or something. Yeah, it's like, and you know, 
the, the other thing that's interesting, if people are looking at how these things go together, um, thinking, well, you, I presume, you, you know, if, in, if you perform, you, you know, do, you, do you write stuff or do you make it up as you go along? Uh, I do both. <laughs> I do a lot of both. <clears throat> um, the interesting challenge when remembering that some, a lot of this stuff is buried in basically comic songs. So we've talked about, with a lot of the stuff we talk about later on, I suppose, in your vinyl stuff is mostly interpreted as in, in monologue, spoken word, you know, pieces to audience, whatever it is on a record. Mm-hmm. But an awful lot of other stuff has to be put in as, as stuff which is actually within a song. Mm-hmm. So the story's in the song, um, and sometimes the song is delivered more spoken than sung. It's, you know, it's not, not necessary to have, be a good singer to be a good comic performer. Sure. Um, indeed, sometimes it ruins the whole timing of the piece. And I've seen the worst thing I see is people who reinterpret these things by just taking the sheet music and singing it with an operatic voice. Because <laughs> they've got no idea where the fun is in it. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Perfectly in tune, but they don't. Um, <clears throat> the, um, the reason I'm saying this is that where the, the humor, the, the same amount of humor in certain things lives inside songs but there's always a difficulty with songs in that somebody can come up with a really good first verse premise but they've got to make a three minute record right so they have to write two other verses and choruses now i have to say um frank crummit does a record called and the pig got up and slowly walked away for which there is no possible second verse, and they wrote one anyway. <laughs> you will find that somewhere on YouTube. Um, to look that up. <laughs> you can. It's, he's 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 very. Don't you know that one? I don't. Um, but I like. Uh, sometimes it's when you get these things, and they've got three, three or four verses. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they get really clever, and, and they build up. They build so people know the first verse and chorus, and they think that was a cute song. And sometimes it's the other way around. It's once you get into verse three, four, and you know three and four, there's other stuff going on. Not out of desperation, but out of right. We've got you. We've got you into the rhythm of this. Now let's throw this in. There's one called um, "Wait a Minute." I think I can't remember who does it, but it's a. Um, it's a. I hesitate to say Cockney, but certainly a London uh, musical comedian, and it's relatively subversive. He's doing doing slightly legal things and it's he's trying to save um he's trying to save money in the song and this is so if it was a joke it would be one thing but it's got to be put into a song with rhythm and tune and in the in the piece it, it starts with something fairly innocuous um and but by the by the third or fourth verse he's got a plan to dig up his back garden find the gas main and tap into it the other side of the meter and when he when he he digs and he comes to a big hole and then he realizes he's dug up the shepherd's bush tube train (laughs) put in my spade and out came a train you know it's it's like the the vision of that as well if you look at you know what now that (laughs) dug up the is it dug dug up the shepherd's bush tube is it wait a minute just a minute Mm -hmm. Uh, do you, don't don't shout! I don't, don't, he's, he's basically don't tell anybody, you know, because it might yeah. <laughs> might find out. I'm hoping to cover up the fact that I've dug up a railway line. You know, um, do you, do you find uh, yourself having to make or, or getting to make 
uh, much comedy uh, recordings in the, in the stuff that you do produce, or is it mostly music? Um, spoken word. Oh, it's difficult, isn't it? Um, yeah. Again, it's really tricky uh, because for all of those reasons, of, of anything that's that's that's. So, if you have a phonograph, for example, and you want to play a record. Mm-hmm. You probably play a record on a phonograph on occasions to demonstrate to people, and it's difficult to suddenly want to play something that's comic and also possibly explain the context. Fair, so yeah. So I think very, it's a very difficult sell. Now, if you look at the original catalogues of stuff, mm-hmm. then although it's there's a there's there was a lot of desire for comic stuff. Um, I think at the time, but I don't know what the percentage is. So um, again, depending on where you are, it becomes regional in this country or countrywide difficult to get one bit of comedy that's going to go universal. Mm-hmm. But you can probably get a popular tune that's going to go universal. So the quantity of records you're going to sell um, is going to be much greater if you you know choose a popular tune and churn it out than if you spend too much time doing comic stuff. Sure. Um, so it has to be a very popular, very popular piece. And again, songs are going to probably work better than monologues, but monologues are going to be quite topical. So it tends, again, this is a thing. A lot of stuff tends to be seems to be quite topical. Mm-hmm. Um, mind you, you can envy or 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 not um, Harry Tate, who was a music hall comedian who had a whole troop of people. And he went round the states as well. In fact, he had two troops of people doing the doing his act. Um, you didn't always get Harry Tate, which would irritate you, um, as he says. Um, <laughs> almost sounds like irritating. But he did uh, he did a number of sketches, one called motoring and one called golfing, and they were quite prop heavy. So he he got in a period where he could do these sketches and they were no longer held by the you mustn't do something theatrical. Uh-huh. Um, but I have I've got... I've I've heard or I don't I don't own that one but I've got the 1926 disc of motoring by Harry Tate and I've also heard the 1904 cylinder mm-hmm. and he's doing the same act <laughs> for 20, 22 years it's fascinating with unfortunately the other thing is the thing is the audience must have loved it as it was and the audience who was still going to see him must have been people who went that was really, because he's making comments about how good car technology, you know, motor car technology was in 1904, mm-hmm. and how slow or fast things went, and all the regulations then, and things that would be funny to an audience who's familiar with the burgeoning world of personal road road transport in 1904, and pretty much he's using the same props and the same jokes in 1926. <laughs> Now, I think wow. golfing could probably stay about the same, but motoring stays about the same. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's so funny. I love it. Yeah. And he says things that, you know, and, it, and it's not terribly funny. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but I think he had a sort of stage presence and a, and a whole, I think on stage, there was such a lot of stuff going on with motor horns and bits of motor car and wheels going on. It was, I think there was more physicality to it. Yeah. And he had a big moustache, which means obviously he's funny. Uh-huh, uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> you can twirl a big moustache. And also, interestingly enough, though, if you those people, you know, I know that you know, I don't want to make them too educational, but um, <laughs> um, 
he uses, you know, and there's a thing that happens now, and I'm trying to think what it is, but, you know, sort of what I call a negative positive thing. It's when he says, it's a very nice car, I don't think. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think what the modern equivalent of that is, where somebody says something at the end of something which is apparently positive is or and is negative. Or Right, right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of these little games that, comes up occasionally so he creates or he creates or picks up on something where the language is using the language and using this phrase which they use a number of times even in the form in the 1904 version mm-hmm. where the the humor is using this sort of new lingo of you know yes it was a very comfortable journey i don't think <laughs> right but it's not familiar to the audience, completely familiar to the audience at the time. And it's also out of date by 1926. Yeah, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to maybe, maybe give people a general idea, because I don't know that we've gone into detail. You sell, uh, tell people about your website and give them just a, a wide breadth, just tell them everything that you do so that they know <laughs> what they're going Because you do a lot of stuff. It's not just selling yeah, cylinders. True. So yes, that that's that's true. Um, the 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 website, uh, oh yes, which you can find just by going. Oh, it, it's on phonographcylinders.com or Vulcan Records, and we do come fairly high up if you put in phonograph cylinders. So, that's how I found you. Yeah, so we're pretty pretty easy to find because we've been there for a bit before it was popular, uh-huh. <laughs> and we booked the ones when they we booked the, the words we needed. So. Um, and uh, the Vulcan Cylinder Records. So there is a list there which we keep a certain amount of stock of certain things. It's a very particular list of what we've been able to make and what's mm-hmm. been popular. Um, and on occasions from that list, people quite often want things. I find that our, our best sellers, because a lot of cylinder machines are in America, seem to be uh, Stars and Stripes Forever March and Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> um, we also have for those people who you know, uh, we 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 create record. We've got records of historic voices. So uh, there's a few of those, or not many, but um, we have P.T. Barnum telling us about his visit to England. Wow. Okay. The only recording of him, just only a year before he died. Um, we have um, we have uh, Florence Nightingale. Uh, doing a charity record huh <laughs> um and uh arthur sullivan who is at a very drunken party uh, given by edison's english agent colonel guru who used to invite people around demonstrate the phonograph shortly after plying them with large quantities of very good wine and um, so on and arthur sullivan has only seen the phonograph for um this evening and his recording includes the use the interesting phrase is uh, it's amazed but uh, somewhat terrified at the result of this evening's experiments amazed at the wonderful power you have developed and terrified that so much bad and hideous music may be put on record forever <laughs> very perceptive man <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good i love it uh, so uh, with historic voices and then generally speaking Things which are, well, we've got two speeches by Edison. We've got Edison doing his comic turn, by the way. Interesting. Okay. Edison, Edison as a, as a, yeah, as a 
stand-up comedian who makes a good inventor. Um, <laughs> but he did have a very peculiar sense, or particular and peculiar sense of humour. Um, but uh, there's the, the Edison liver story. Uh-huh which he was persuaded by his recording engineer to, to do, and then they snuck off and turned it into a mould and made a record of it <laughs> without him knowing. Um, yeah, he's, uh, and uh, so, yes, yeah, so, yeah, so it was his stand-up stand comic turn. Um, do you know the liver story? I don't, but I was just looking at it on your website, <laughs> and I'm going to have to, because uh, for those who don't know, you can also give them a listen on your oh yes we, we give you a little bit of we don't give you yeah. all of it sure of course, of course. <laughs> can't give you the whole thing <laughs> but um no edison's well he he has a very uh, not an earthy sense of humor but a very practical sense of humor in certain ways but he liked the one about the chap who had the liver complaint and he said uh, and of course it's all about research and development as he said and he, and he rigged out this team and they went down the san joaquin valley <laughs> looking for mineral springs and they tested the mineral springs and they found one that that relieved him of his liver complaint so he built a sanitarium and kept drinking the water and he said uh, but then eventually he died and at the coroner's inquest they had to take his liver out and kill it with a club <laughs> oh that is very very strange i love that Isn't they <laughs> They they tricked or uh, seemingly tricked Thomas Edison into telling his maybe one funny story that he knew. Well, there's a journalist Francis Arthur James's biography is going because he puts a couple of stories that um, that, that Edison liked as, as jokes as well. He mm. also played Edison played practical jokes on people down at the his winter home in Fort Myers. It's not so much a practical joke. Well, it was a practical joke. He he, uh, he had a, a turnstile that you had to walk through between the front and the back of the house. Mm. Visitors used to say to him, you know, Mr. Edison, you know, why is there a turnstile between the front and the back of that? It's a bit in the way, you know, it's a bit inconvenient. And every time you go through there, you, you pump two gallons of water up into the tank in the attic. <laughs> <sighs> that is a very surreal weird that's an inventor joke too isn't that strange that it is yeah, a joke so, about yeah. tech like that is a weird yes. good god that's strange i, I he, also he, love that you know it though he also he also liked one about um the chap from the country who comes to comes to new york to stay in a hotel and says and goes down you know, checks in and goes down to the desk and says you know um what time are the meals and the and the and the chap behind the the counter says well I'm, Breakfast series from um, from seven till uh, seven till ten. Lunches from uh, ten till two. Afternoon tea is from two till uh, two till six, and uh, dinner is from six till ten. And this episode, how the tarnation am I going to get to see the town? <laughs> do you? Uh, well, I okay. I was gonna. I was just leading you. I know you do this, but you also do custom. I do apologize to your audience, by the way, for my probably not terribly good impersonation of either Edison or um, or an American accent. <laughs> I've heard much worse. I've heard much <laughs> worse. And then if I were to do my English accent, you'd be, oh, well, I guess I'm fine. You'd, you'd feel. <laughs> Which English accent? Yeah, that, see, that's the thing. Here's the deal. Even, even, even though I'm born there and I can usually tell the difference between an accent or two, I still like default to this very generic if I, that anybody would be like, where the hell are you from? 
And I, you know, and I know that's what would happen. But over here, there's fewer people are going to notice a difference. They're like, oh, all English people people speak that way, which is obviously not the case. Um, but yeah, mine's mine's very generic, very generic <laughs> London e ish sort of kind of almost. Um, you know, you listen, you, you watch enough stuff with Simon Pegg in it, and you sort of figure out uh, that's 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 what I think I've I've come come away with is a sort of Simon Pegg. You might have, you, yeah, you might have to acclimatize yourself to uh, George Formby Senior then. <laughs> yes, right. <clears throat> <clears throat> um, you do make custom cylinders. And oh yes, yes. No, I want you to you tell for, people about it because that's what got me so excited. The commercial side. Of the <laughs> you can see, you know, I've been trying to put people off for the last few. Then this lockdown thing came in over over here. I thought, oh, that's good. I'll be to, not good, but I mean, I'll be to tidy things up and people will stop ordering stuff. Since then, I've had nothing but work. <laughs> They've been at home going, oh, that cylinder project I wanted to do, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yes, um, quite a bit. I don't know financially, but quite a lot of the work I do, I do for um, people who want something particular on cylinder, and sometimes, as I say, they've got an art project of some sort, they've got their own piece of stuff. I think at the moment I've got an art a piece, and I've just delivered some out to France for something that somebody's doing about the preservation of voices, and uh, lots of interesting noises and a lot of French that I didn't bother to translate. Mm-hmm. But it came out okay. And another one, I think, is a companion piece to go with some sort of video game. Oh wow! Music from a video game on it. Do you know? Are you allowed to say the name of it? I no? can't. No, I well, no, I I can't tell you at the moment uh, because they've not launched this thing yet. So. Okay, so it's not what I think <laughs> it is. It's not what I because I will tell you there is a there is a game that came out a few years ago uh, that uh, I don't play video games, but I desperately want the soundtrack because it was released on what looks like an old seventy eight album, like an actual. Yeah. You know, and the game is called Cuphead, and the music is beautiful, and also, oh, they've made it look so perfectly vintage that I desperately oh, want. Right. I I love that yeah. somebody's doing a cylinder like these. Oh my god! I, <laughs> once that happens, please send me an email. I, I need to find out what that is. I'll find out from the chap who's doing what, what what's happening with it. So that's all right. But yeah, I can't I can't necessarily tell you because of course, of course. <laughs> I love that. <clears throat> yeah, that's so, amazing. Uh, and uh, we did a project a couple of years ago from some somebody. I, I think he he wanted to do um, he wanted to do a whole um, rap and hip hop DJ set using cylinders. Oh my god! So <clears throat> yeah, I have to say that um, I'm not quite sure what my neighbours might have thought when I was playing some of that <laughs> stuff. It made some of some of my sus- suspect material on <laughs> cylinders sound positively. Nice. <laughs> uh, it's very difficult. To, you had to cut quite a lot of the base off certain things. Which oh, I bet. I, yeah. The other thing that's interesting, though, is that from the point of view of, of something that's coming, because this is the other thing, it's when you need to deliver something into a, or that's going to come out of something that's got limited fidelity. Some of the pieces we had were, were it was really interesting, the clarity and precision of diction that some of these people who do the rap stuff have and their delivery there is a in some of the cases there's quite a humorous delivery in the timing on these things so there mm-hmm. is some stuff so you know I, mean, I can't say whether i 
I, uh, knowing how difficult some of these things are to do, the, the skill was quite remarkable. And actually, once I'd stripped away some of the base, with some of them, what was left was, 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 was interesting its own, in its own way because it's exposed the, the story. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, in some of them, it, there's, you know, the story should A, be buried under music and then B, <laughs> be buried. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, on the other case, it was in, very interesting. I go, okay. And they're all marked on the end of the cylinder with the beats per minute. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. So you can, well, you can work out which one you're putting on next. <laughs> that is so crazy. I... Uh... I there well no I can't say that because I, I have a friend who has a very fascinating cylinder project he wants to do and I I I, I don't think I've sent him the link to your website yet I'm gonna right. have to do that I also have one but that's that's way down the line um <laughs> uh, but just because you know hey you know it's you've you've gotta you gotta be ready it's it's not a it, it's not a cheap process but I will say I'm looking at your prices now and for all the work you're doing and the amount of time it takes you to churn these out um it's pretty reasonable um so people should go to vulcanrecords.com if we didn't say it already and we do discs now amazing okay good so you can play on your vic trailer with a steel needle love it so we good we can take it on a picnic yeah <laughs> <laughs> i you know i i really love having you on the show um and we'll probably have to we're probably gonna have to bring you back and maybe talk about some more specific tracks or maybe something yeah, late, so. later on um but uh, yeah, please, everybody go to VulcanRecords.com. Is there anything else? Is there a Twitter presence? Is there a Facebook? Anything? Anybody I'm else? Afraid, no, I'm afraid not. Try to hide out as much. No, I don't mean that. But it's quite <laughs> difficult to manage some of those things. You yes, never know yes. what's going to happen. So no, there's there's the website where you can be emailed. Uh, there used to be a blog, but I don't fill it in. So it's too many things to manage when you're making other stuff. Of course. Of course. Um, you never know. Yeah, I don't want to get into trouble by tweeting sort of tweeting something out by mistake you know fair enough and then you're expected to tweet things out at some point aren't you so, uh-huh uh-huh and i can't <laughs> i can't keep up with it i've got too many accounts and i tweet yeah. you know once a week and then nobody cares because again you have to be tweeting all the time it's, i should uh, uh, i should resurrect the uh, leslie Cerrone song let's all sing like the birdies sing tweet 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 <laughs> i love it that's so, so good like nightingales give your throats a treat <laughs> <laughs> your your encyclopedic knowledge is to be admired uh maybe feared possibly feared uh, uh, <laughs> uh it's useful to practice it on occasions i'm yeah. not sure why but uh, that's the other thing is that there's um if you go you get a a breadth of the, and some of the things are silly but silliness is sometimes quite useful um, but if you get a sort of breadth of these things, you get a much better, um, uh, better idea of history and humor and things like that. And um, things pop out of these things that you don't expect. So, yeah, it's yeah. it's 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 worth the research, especially if that if that's something you're interested in or think you might be interested in. Mm -hmm. Just just dig maybe a little further back than you might think you have to. Because, um, you know, I know I've interviewed a lot of comedians on this show, and I don't judge them by this, but some of them have come to me saying, I didn't really listen to comedy albums growing up. And that's why some of the, some of the people haven't even done the show. I'm like, that's fine. You don't have to have. However, maybe give it a shot. And <laughs> maybe dig back because you might find something. You, you One of the things I like as a comedy writer and performer is digging back. 20 years, then 30, then 40, then 50, and then you know, a hundred, literally more than 100 years and realizing, oh, I've written that joke before. So it's not that much of an original thought, but it's also not the worst thing in the world that I've 
come up with an unoriginal thought because we've been doing it forever. It's just yeah. your take on it. Of course, and of course, you know, to, to downgrade the program rather than they, they, in the late 1890s, um, uh, there were quite a lot of people producing things which were effectively um, were, were well, in fact, actually, there is a CD of all the all the rude records we've managed to find. Mm -hmm. Some very suspect material on there. Uh, <laughs> a chap called Russell Hunting, who was who who in his American biography is dismissed as having gone to England uh, after after being imprisoned for making uh, pornographic records. <laughs> Not sure how they were pornographic, but they were they were suspect, and he was they were locked up in the states when they were being puritanical. And when aren't they? Uh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> and uh, came over here and worked for Edison Bell and did uh, did, did recorded and then well, anyway he he had a much longer career working for Edison Bell and Pathé and so on over here doing all sorts of things. Wow. But he was an interesting character. Um, but he, uh, he, but it's interesting that you know that there are one or two definitely comic things in that field. There's um, there is a record somewhere, and I think uh, it does exist. I think on this CD, and it might be on the internet. Some, but there's one where they're alluding to um, uh, a, a, a boating or a, sh a shipping accident in. Um, uh, off, you know, off one of the ports or off the coast or in the river or somewhere in, in America. And the uh, the whole thing is actually really, is, is, is a reference to the, the, one of the ships is Grover, is the Grover Cleveland. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and the other one is named after his then mistress. And they collide in the night, and there's an awful lot of collision, and and an awful lot of pumping goes on <laughs> due to the hole under the waterline. <laughs> Holy cow! It's done as a sort of news report, read, read out of a newspaper, but it's just completely scandalous, you know. <laughs> That's so funny. It's not, you know, it's not not exactly what you might find on a satirical news show at the moment, but not far off. The 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 other bit of performance stuff i did which is called wireless times is set in the in a in a with a 1930s outside broadcast crew uh, where everything goes horribly wrong so we don't need to write anything pertinent or up to date <laughs> i love it yeah that's the um, kind of thing i can get behind i love it but we but, I, but we were cruel with that one well not cruel but um the first major script we did for that one because it's a whole show and the audience are basically involved in supporting us making all the sound effects and things like that so um but the first show is, is the 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 um the finale is actually the uh, this is 2012 so the finale was the titanic um and we had we we had it's quite a nice script actually but we had we had the audience set out so that we had they paid different amounts for the tickets and the one table were the the people in first class had uh, lace tablecloths and um, chocolates and things on the table and wine glasses. People in second class had beer bottles and a check tablecloth. <laughs> and the people on the back tables had um, had newspapers and a, and a plate full of plain crackers. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> so I'm just horrible. This is, I don't know if it's British or just whatever. But at some point we go, well, and we had to explain to the audience that they were going to have to make all the effects for the sinking of the Titanic. Uh -huh. And um, 
and then we say so so when we hit the iceberg so we'd supplied we'd supplied the the back row the the steerage passengers with glasses of water with ice in it and when we said so now when we get to the iceberg when we hit the iceberg well all the people in first class to stand up and say steward show me to my place in the lifeboat <laughs> and then all the people in second class want to jump up and say steward are there any places left in the lifeboat <laughs> and now all you people in third in steerage at the back pick those glasses of water up and do this <laughs> <laughs> love it delightful so good <laughs> so yeah that was <laughs> can i hear that anywhere is that online somewhere uh no it isn't but i can probably i can probably translate it into something and send it to you i would love to hear it that sounds yeah. hilarious that sounds up my alley oh uh, yeah 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 well it was um oh, well i won't give you well <laughs> it's, it's like the apocryphal story of the you know, and it's usually two american women who apparently sitting in the audience of the uh, of the film Titanic, the recent one, the <laughs> relatively recent one. And apparently they were heard to turn to each other at a crucial point in the film going, I don't think they're going to make it. <laughs> oh, God. It must be sad for people. It must be interesting for people who don't know any who history. Have no idea, right? something that's a historical... I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, uh, Duncan! Uh, again, this has been a damn delight. Um, I again, I'm going to tell everybody to go to VulcanRecords.com, uh, and I'm not going to promote any of my st own stuff this week because I I think you guys should check out uh, Duncan's <laughs> website. Um, and again, thank you guys for listening. And as always, have a good thing. Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Our theme song was composed and performed by Richard Levinson. You can email us at podcast at comedyonvinyl.com. You can also send snail mail to Stolen Dress Entertainment, P.O. Box 805, Burbank, California, 91503. Subscribe to Comedy on Vinyl on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you can find podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and write us a review. It helps. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Comedy on Vinyl, or find everything in one place at Comedy on